You guys having a good morning? Yes. Yeah? Okay, well, I'm about to ruin that. Romans chapter 3 is where we're going to be at this morning. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and uh, turn to Romans chapter 3 uh, as we continue in our series through the book of Romans. Uh, Nine years ago, my, we were moving from the Japan to the Czech Republic, and uh, in between, we're here in the, in the States, and we were sending our kids to camp. And to go to this camp, they had to uh, go get a, uh, the physical. And, and in the course of that physical, we discovered, the doctor told us, hey, did you know that your daughter, Abby, has scoliosis? And we said, no, we don't know anything about that. Um, sent her to the camp. Uh, we were about to move to the Czech Republic, but we had time to go down to the uh, children's hospital and they said we're going to do some x-rays and then uh, one doctor said you know you might want to do an MRI in case there's anything causing that and we're like yeah sure of course let's let's do all that and and so when they did that um, sure sure enough comes back the x-ray and her back looked like an S and the doctor said this is actually really severe the the degree that it that the curve is at at her age right now the vast majority over 90 percent of children with this will have uh, surgeries significant surgeries uh, maybe even a, a steel rod placed in her back so to keep her back straight for the rest of her life because if this isn't something isn't done here it's going to continue to curve it's going to crush her heart and her lungs and it's going to end her life We're like okay well you know, obviously, is there anything we can do other than uh, surgery? They said, well, you could, when you move to the Czech Republic, you could try to uh, see if there's a specialist there. You could try to get uh, some bracing and, and do all that. And so uh, we're like, okay. So we, we move to the Czech Republic. And uh, as soon as we get settled in, we, we look up and, and we find that there is a hospital about a mile away from us. It's a faculty hospital. Uh, but, but you should not think uh, like hospitals today. You shouldn't think that children's hospital. Those, those kind of feel like a, a hotel. Uh, now, you should think this was built during communism. So it, it is dark. It's gray. It's, um, it, it's a cement building. And everyone in there is embracing that kind of motive. And so that's just kind of their, 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 at, their the atmosphere that you walk into. And so seven-year-old Abby's kind of like, what, what is going on here? And, and the doctor looks at it and says, yeah, this is really bad. And uh, what we're going to have to do, we're going to have to uh, take a cast of your body. We're going to have to create some braces and, and it's going to push on your hip and it's going to push under your ribs and it's going to push uh, on, on your spine and it's gonna, there's going to be tears. Uh, there, there's going to be calluses that are going to be built up and you're going to have to wear this 23 hours a day. And you're going to have a hard time sleeping. It's going to be painful. And she's like, okay, okay. And he's just very, very direct. Like, no bedside manner whatsoever. Like, it's just like, you're going to do this. And so sure enough, she got the brace. She wore it. It was, it was hard. It was painful. But, but she was a champ. And uh, they go back and there was some correction going on there. And she'd grow a little bit. And they'd do another one. And she'd go through a whole different kind of pain and pushing. And, and she'd grow some more. And she'd do another one. Uh, and a whole different kind of pain and pushing. Uh, but in the end, she uh, actually corrected enough that uh, she ended up never needing surgery. And we praise God for that. But um, I think back at that time and I think uh, while we didn't necessarily love the bedside manner of the doctor and the diagnosis, uh, it was in the reality of the diagnosis that there was hope for Abby. In, in, in the embracing of the reality of the diagnosis, there was hope for her. And, and we found out that uh, when we came back to the States and, and we saw others that were dealing with uh, scoliosis here in the States, that they actually kind of deal with it very differently. 
Well, like back there, they were just like, you're going to wear this brace. Uh, It's going to be big and bulky under your clothes and everyone's going to see it. Here it's like, well, you should probably wear a brace. Um, You know, but, you know, your self-esteem is really important. So if you don't want to wear a brace, you don't really have to. And, and if it's uncomfortable, you know, we don't want to give you a, 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 any kind of conscious about it. So, like, don't, you don't, like, it was just really soft. And so, we saw some parents say, like, yeah, we got that, but uh, she never wears it. And, and we, we just thought it was never an option. 23 hours a day is what you ha- had to do. Some were like, yeah, we're just trying alternative things. We're trying some uh, essential oils. I'm not joking. That's what they told us. I was like, no, no. But the embracing of the truth, as difficult as that is, is where there is hope. And uh, Paul, this is Paul being a, a good doctor to us in the first three chapters of the book of Romans. He's saying, hey, hey the diagnosis, the diagnosis is very, very bad. It's worse than you think. You're worse than you think. And, and we're like, well, we don't really like your bedside manner, Paul. But it's, an, it's the embracing of the truth that there is a path for hope for us. This is why Paul is, is going through, uh, laboring through to show us just the difficulty of this. Of this. Uh, Steve Jobs this week on October 5th died 10 years ago. He died 10 years ago. And uh, by many accounts, he should still be alive today. He was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, um, and, but he denied the diagnosis for nine months. For nine months, he denied the treatment plan and the diagnosis of the specialist, and, and he pursued, he went online uh, on his Mac, and he pursued uh, alternative uh, pers- medicines and uh, alternative ways to deal with this cancer. For, for six weeks, he drank just beet juice. That was his only diet, thinking this will serve me well. This will cure the cancer. And eventually after, as it continued to grow, continued to get worse, nine months into it, he was like, okay, uh, I'm ready to embrace reality. And the doctors were like, it's too late. It's too late. Here's what the head of the cancer center that treated Steve said. It says, Job's faith in alternative medicine likely cost him his life. He had the only kind of pancreatic cancer that is treatable and curable. He essentially committed suicide. When we do not embrace reality of ourselves and the reality of the world, the reality of our sin, then we are essentially committing spiritually, spiritual suicide. And no one is going to lie to you more than you. No one's going to lie to Mark Oshman more than Mark Oshman. No one's going to try to convince you that you're all right, that you're pretty good, that, 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 that God should probably grade on a curve, and if he does, you're going to be in because you look around the world, and everyone's worse than you, it seems like that, and, and if they're not, you surround yourselves with some friends that, that, that are worse than you, and if you don't have those friends, you're that friend, by the way, uh, that, that they have, uh, but, but whatever it is, we, we try to blame shift. It was my parents. It was the school. It was the, where I grew up. Like, like, we have all these excuses to say, I'm really not that bad. It's really not that. The diagnosis is a little bit extreme here, Paul. But here's the deal. When, when we lie to ourselves and we think we're not that bad, what, what we, we end up doing, if we have any inclination, any desire for God at all, it, it's like uh, we, we only need, we're only a little bit bad, so we only need a little bit of help. And if you only need a little bit of help, you only need a little gospel. 
If you only have a little gospel, you'll have only a little bit of joy and a little bit of hope and a little bit of faith. Sometimes we think of of Jesus as kind of like this divine door holder, like he's going to open the door for heaven. And if, if you got your hands full and you got a lot of stuff going on in your life, you're like, oh, thank you. That was very polite. But deep down, you know, I could open the door myself if I really needed to. Thank you for doing that, Jesus. Or, or how about like sometimes when you're walking and, and you're coming up to a building, but someone sees you, but they're an awkwardly far distance away from you. You know what I'm saying? And they hold the door for you. And you're thinking, oh, having this, man, I haven't stretched. I got to start running now. I, I, don't, I don't have the right shoes on. And you're like, oh, thanks, man. And you're, uh, you, you're, you're, you put on a smile, but deep down you're like, dude, why did you do that? Like I could open the door myself. And, and this is kind of how a lot of people approach religion. That's how they approach Jesus. Like, like uh, thank you for holding the door for me, but I could pretty much get in there myself just on my own effort. And so we have a little gospel, a little hope. But Paul wants to show us, oh, oh you have a big need. You have a, a big, big need. And so to meet that big need, you need a big gospel. And to embrace a big gospel means that you'll have big faith, big hope, big joy. And that's what Paul has been getting at in the three chapters of Romans as he's just digging into our big need. We, we will not understand the rest of the book of Romans without understanding Romans 1 through 3. And if you don't embrace what Paul says in Romans 1 through 3, what's crazy is in passages like Romans chapter 8 and Romans chapter 9, where he just lays out some amazing things of the gospel, people are actually offended by it because they haven't understood how bad the bad news is when Paul says God is so good that it was only his sovereign grace, his electing sovereign grace that could come and rescue sinners. We read that and we're like, well, we weren't that bad. I say, go back to Romans 1, 2, and 3 and see. He's setting this up. So for the first 100 years of Harvard Law School, the the students had to study the book of Romans, not for its theology, but for the way that that Paul lays out an argument. He's going to lay out his argument. He's going to build his case. He's going to anticipate objections and answer those objections so that to bring us to a knowledge of the truth. And if we embrace reality this morning, there is hope for us. There is eternal hope and there's hope in this world for us. And so if you have your Bible, Romans chapter 3 is where we're at today. Uh, If you were here last week, you know Pastor Rick talked about Romans 2. But in Romans 1, Paul had uh, addressed the sinfulness of the Gentile world. In all the ways that the downward spiral of sin has infiltrated this world. And at that point he said, uh, probably the Jews were clapping on the side, the Jewish Christians saying, yes, tell us how bad they are. And then he turns his attention to the Jewish people. And he says, hey, you're no better off. The, the, foot is level, uh, the, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And at this point, they're probably pretty offended. In fact, Paul knows that they are. He, he's used to it. He, being a, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as he describes himself in Philippians 3, one born on the eighth day of the tribe of, of Israel, legalistically a Pharisee, all those things. He knows what it feels like to trust in his national and ethnic identity. And he knows when he goes to each town and he goes to the synagogue after synagogue, he knows what kind of objections to the gospel are going to come up. And so he has this dialogue that he's going to have here as he continues to unpack the bad news in Romans chapter 3. It's actually going to be in three ways. In verses 1 through 8, there's going to be this dialogue of objections to uh, Jewish objections to the gospel. 
But then in uh, Romans 9 through 18, he's going to quote from their scriptures to just show them from their own scriptures how bad the situation is. And then in Romans 19 through 20, he's going to show what is the whole point of the Bible in the first place? What was the whole point of the law? So that's where we're going this morning. Well, let's look at this together. And I'd ask you to listen carefully. This is God's word. Four objections. It says, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? So, so the first objection is, Paul, uh, what's the, is there any Jewish advantage? Like what's, what's been the whole point of the last thousands and thousands of years of God interacting with his people? Surely there's an advantage to being Jewish, Paul. Wouldn't you say that? Or we might say, what's the advantage of, of being a covenant member in a church? What, what's the advantage of our baptism? And then Paul answers. He says, well, actually, much in every way. To begin with, or that word could actually be translated of first importance, and it sounds like he's going to do a list, and he will in Romans chapter 9, but he's just going to say one thing. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. He says, you want to talk advantage? Remember chapter 1? The, the Gentiles, they got the light of creation. They, they could see that the, wor- the world was created and that should point them to God. They got the light of conscience that they could see that, that, that there was a moral compass in them and that should point them to God. And, and the Jews got both of those things, but they also got the very words of God telling them what God is like, telling them what, how a faithful he is, telling them about the covenants and the promises. And, and Paul says, hey, there's a huge advantage to being Jewish. You've inherited all of this. You have the Bible. This is amazing. So that brings up their second objection. Well, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? So so the objection is, well, if we have this and we have all these promises, then why aren't more of God's covenant people embracing the gospel? Has God's promises and has his word failed? Because they're all unfaithful. And and Paul is going to answer that. He says, uh, verse 4, by no means. This is is the most emphatic way that Paul could write in the Greek. Meganoito, by no means. Heck no, never. And he's going to use it several times in the book of Romans. By no means, let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Paul is saying, hey, you should know from the scriptures that even though God's people have repeatedly been unfaithful, that that just shows you all the more how faithful God is, how much he's done to uh, fulfill and keep his promises in spite of his people. So so it's not that God is unfaithful, that God is faithful even when his people are not, which brings another objection, verse 5. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unjust to inflict us, inflict wrath on us? And then he says, I speak in a human way. He says, this is such a crazy argument, but but the argument is, hey, look, we're unrighteous, but, but... You're saying, Paul, that it just shows all the more how God is righteous. So how could God even have the the moral authority to judge us if our unrighteousness makes his righteousness more clear? And he says, again, by no means. For how could God judge the world? He says, you know that God is the judge of all people. He is the judge of the world. Which brings the final objection, number seven. But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? 
They're, they're basically saying, look, if our sin, if our lying, if all these things just put the glory of God's gospel on display, then why am I condemned? And he says, shouldn't we just do more? Verse 8, and why not do evil that good may come? Well, why don't we just sin real big so God could seem really gracious and really merciful? He says, as some people slanderously charge us with saying their condemnation is just. Paul is saying, look, I've been accused of this before. He says, but you do not understand the gospel if the gospel motivates you to sin. The, the gospel is that, that there is grace and mercy in God, and the gospel will only motivate us to pursue Jesus, to turn from our sin, and to accept his free gift of mercy and grace. The gospel does that. Anyone that thinks that the gospel means we can sin more has not understood, embraced, or accepted the gospel. And so Paul uh, deals with these objections. But fundamentally, the problem of these Jewish people at the time was a misunderstanding of the purpose of the law. They thought, well, we have the law. God has told us what we should do and what we shouldn't do. And if we do what we should do, then God is going to accept us. They think that if we just do what the law says, then we'll be accepted. But that's not the point of the law. In fact, in verse 19, he begins to tell us what the point is of the whole Bible. Verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. So so he says, you should come to God, you should come to the Ten Commandments, you should come to the law and, and begin to see in it that it is a mirror to your soul. And if you can see clearly into the mirror, it should shut your mouth. You should tremble before God. I know some people say crazy stuff like, oh, when I get to heaven, I'm going to have some questions. I'm going to call into God to account. I'm going to ask him why he did this, this, and this, and I'm going to spit in his face, and I'm going to walk away. And I'm like, no, you're not. No, you're not. Your mouth will be shut in that moment in the presence of the holiness of the holy, holy, thrice holy God. And, and, And if... If by his grace, before we get to that point, we, we could come to the law and be like, man, I can't measure up. I don't have any excuse. I, I can't do this. It's insanity to look at the law and be like, man, I've done that. I'm good. It's insanity. It's the same thing with Jesus. Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount. Secular people, religious people, they like the Sermon on the Mount. They're like, oh, the Sermon on the Mount is good. We should, uh, you know, if society lived that way, it'd be great. Like, have you ever read the Sermon on the Mount? (laughs) Yes, it would be good if we all uh, followed the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount. But again, that was not the ultimate purpose of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus would say things like, hey, you have heard that it is said that, that you should not commit adultery. They're like, yeah, check. That's in the Ten Commandments. He says, but I say to you, if you look at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery in your heart. You're like, What? Well, okay, I guess I'm guilty. You've heard that it is said, do not commit murder. Well, I I can check that box. I haven't committed murder. But I say to you, if anyone is angry with his brother, he's committed murder in his heart. You're like, ah, I'm a murderer now? You're calling me a murderer, Jesus? See, if you understand the Sermon on the Mount, you shouldn't be like, oh, that's nice. Let's give a golf clap to that. You should be like, Lord, save me from the Sermon on the Mount. 
1987, uh, Virginia Stim Owens was a professor in, uh, at Texas A&M, which beat Alabama last night, by the way. Um, that was a good game. Uh, but she was a professor at Texas, English professor at Texas A&M, and uh, she decided to do this, uh, this assignment where incoming fresh, 80, 1987, so it's like, we were like, oh, the world the last 10 years is so bad. No, 1987, these kids coming in from the Bible Belt, she assigns the Sermon on the Mount. And she thought they would have some like, you know, some religious affections for it and say, oh, that was nice, all that. She was shocked by, by so many of their responses. There's a great article that covers the whole thing on it. But, but here's a couple of the responses of the students in their papers. One said this, I did not like the essay, Sermon on the Mount. It was hard to read. It made me feel like I had to be perfect and no one is. Dare I say that this person probably understands the Sermon on the Mount better than half of us. It was hard to read. It made me feel like I had to be perfect. No one is. Another student. The things asked in the Sermon on the Mount are absurd. To look at a woman lustfully is adultery? That is the most extreme, stupid, unhuman statement that I have ever heard. I mean, apparently he doesn't know you shouldn't call Jesus stupid. <laughs> and this is what Paul's saying. Look, if you look at the law, at a certain point it should shut your mouth. And I, I, can't, I can't measure up. He says every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Verse 24, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law is a mirror. And the mirror is to reveal the truth. If you look in the mirror and you don't like what you see, you don't break the mirror. You don't try to fix the mirror. You realize it's reflecting something. And when, when we got Abby's x-rays and her MRI, by the way, I got the bill for the MRI. It was $12,000. I called him up. I was like, uh, I don't... And we were in, in between insurances, and I was like, ah, that's expensive. They're like, well, how much do you make? I was like, this amount. Can you afford $200? Yeah, 200 bucks. <laughs> it was awesome. But we got the MRI, we got the x-ray. And as helpful as they are to, to show us the problem, they're pow- they were powerless to actually do anything with the problem. Same as with the law. It's an x-ray to our soul. It can show us the problem, the, the bent in our spiritual spine. But we need something outside. We need something from outside of us to come and correct us in that moment. And so that's what Paul is saying. He's saying, look, he's finally making his argument, coming to the, the, the point that he's been working for for three chapters now. It's this doctrine of what, what some theologians would call total depravity. Total depravity. Maybe a better word would be pervasive depravity. Uh, Total depravity is this idea that sin, since Genesis 3, has spun out into the world in every area, in every heart, every mind, every emotion. It, It does not mean that everything's as bad as it possibly can be. Surely some people are more depraved than others, and we're all depraved in different ways. It just means that there's no part of creation, no part of our hearts, our lives, our souls that are not untainted by sin. And so Paul is going to unpack total depravity for us in the middle section here. He's going to quote seven verses 
from the Old Testament, mostly from Psalms, one from Proverbs, one from Isaiah. He's going to put forth the case that all of humanity is desperately in need for God's grace. So let's look at that together. I'll have them on the screen here. Total depravity. Pick it up. I'll, I'll pick it up in verse 9. It says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? Well, Paul, you just said that they had an advantage. But then he says, no, not at all. For we have all charged that all, that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. He says that you had the advantage. You just didn't take the advantage. And so spiritually, you are a sinner before God. And so are the Gentiles and the whole world. And then he unpacks total depravity. Verse 10, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. This is sin has corrupted our nature. We are born, he's going to later say in Romans, we are born into Adam. We are born into sin. You, you don't become a sinner by sinning. You're a sinner, therefore you sin. That's just innate. You don't have to teach a toddler to rebel. You have to teach a toddler to obey. And the only difference between a toddler and a terrorist is size and capacity. <laughs> right? So, you, like, we, we all are, are born into sin. It's, it's our nature. He goes on, so, so sin has corrupted our nature. Sin has corrupted our minds. No one understands. Ultimately, when it comes to God, in and of ourselves, no one understands. Our mind is corrupted by sin, and so we use the very mind that God created us, as genius as it is, to argue against God. It's insanity. It's spiritual suicide. It's corrupted our motives. No one seeks for God. Again, Paul's saying it. He's quoting Old Testament scriptures. No one seeks for God. And this you might say, well, that's a little bit over the top. I know a lot of people that are seeking for God. I know a lot of people that are very religious in their, and pursuing of their thing. <clears throat> what is Paul saying here? He's saying that no one, for, for in, the, in the biblical sense, for an act to be good, it is both intrinsic and extrinsic, meaning it's internal motivation and it's external work. And, and he's saying at, at the root of it, no one is ultimately seeking the God of the universe. They might be seeking what God can provide them. They might be seeking all the gifts of God, but, but deep down in and of ourselves, without the Spirit intervening in our lives, we don't seek for God. Uh, number, verse 12, the, the sin has corrupted our will. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Again, he's quoting from Isaiah 53 here. Isaiah 53, 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. It's corrupted our will. And again, you might say, no, there's lots of good in the world. Yes, absolutely. Total, the doctrine of total depravity isn't that everything, everywhere is, is bad in the world. It's that spiritually speaking, there is no goodness in us that would earn us or merit us favor in God's presence in and of ourselves. So there is a lot of good. Theologians call this common grace. And, and praise God for his restrain, restraining grace, common grace. Praise God for governments and, and, and police and, and military that, that, that hold evil at bay. Praise God for, for many good things. The image bearers all the time in rebellion to God create, create amazing things. I mean, I loved Steve Jobs. I loved reading his biography by Walter Isaacson after he died. But when you read that biography, you are struck with, here's an image bearer 
doing good things for humanity, and at the same time, he's a jerk. He's wicked in his heart. How is that possible? How is it that today he helped us worship as I wrote my sermon on my Mac and as we got out our iPads and, and streamed the words on the screen and stream it to an Apple TV today because of this guy who was in rebellion to God? That's common grace. But ultimately, that isn't enough. That isn't going to bring us into right standing with God. So it's affected our wills. Verses 13 through 14, it's affected our mouths, our speech, Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. We've all used our mouth to tell lies, gossip, to tear people down, to make ourselves look better. And and it's this picture from the Old Testament and Paul saying our, our mouths are these open graves where death and decay comes out when it should be blessing and life. Verse uh, 15, their feet are swift to shed blood and their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. This is, sin has corrupted society, culture, relationships. Ever since Cain killed his brother Abel, it's been the human story. The last 100 years, the most bloody 100 years in human history. Say, so, well, we, we've... We've kind of advanced. We're, we're, we're not like that. This isn't true of us. We're, we're uh, an advanced society. Really? Every year we put to death almost a million of the smallest image bearers that are not born yet. We are a bloodthirsty people. Quick to shed blood. And, and maybe that's part of your story. And again, d- denying reality won't help you. It is abortive murder. But if you embrace that truth, you will be prepared to receive the grace and mercy that is going to be offered even here. Finally, and worst of all, sin has corrupted our souls. There is no fear of God before their eyes. The Bible says on repeat, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. There is no wisdom, there's no fear of God, there's no trembling in His presence. And all of this is, is making the case that in and of ourselves we stand rightly and justly condemned. Rightly and justly condemned. So what are we to do with a passage like Romans chapter 3, 1 through 20? I think this passage is inviting us to lament. It's inviting us to feel the weight of our sin and our shame and the brokenness. It's inviting us to do what we do Every Good Friday as a church family, we come into the room and we, we consider Jesus in the, in the garden. We consider him at the trial. We consider him on the cross and we leave in darkness and we just feel the weight of that. But even there, we know Sunday's coming. It's preparing us for Sunday. And so it is appropriate for us to sit in our own brokenness, to not shift the blame because the reality is we all sin and we are sinned against. We have good reasons for why we sin sometimes, and yet in the end, that won't be sufficient. And so we sit in that, we lament that. I think that's the first thing that this passage is calling us to do. But this passage is also preparing the soil of our hearts to truly receive a big gospel, big good news. Next week we'll see, and I don't want to get into it too much, but just look at the very next verse of our passage, verse 21, but now... 
But now, dot, dot, dot. Praise God, the book of Romans doesn't end in Romans 3.20. But now, Jesus Christ, but now. And even in this passage, even as Paul unpacks our total depravity, there is hope on the horizon if we embrace the truth of the diagnosis. Look at verse 10 again. No one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Jesus came, and in Luke chapter 6, he said, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. We won't find God on our own. But Jesus left his throne in glory, stepped down into our, our skin, our flesh. He walked among us, and he came to seek and to save. We're in our own rebellion going away from him, but he's coming for us. There is hope on the horizon. So let us embrace, believe, and tell the truth to each other and the world. The the news is very, very bad. But the good news is very, very good. This this passage also reminds us uh, of the basis for for our dignity and human equality. You're like, how does this remind us of our basis for dignity and human equality? Well, first of all, all of us are image bearers of God. And something has gone terribly wrong. This this passage tells us that something has gone terribly wrong. It tells us that you were made for more than this. The whole world was made for more than this. You were made for more than just wallowing in your sin. And when you see that you are not better than anyone else, you're not worse than anyone else, but we all have this massive need, there's a basis for equality. There you can love and and share and, and, and... and care for one another equally because we're all equally lost, but we're all equally made in his image as well. As we look at this passage and, and consider it even this week, it is right and good to lament. It is right and good to uh, consider our own sin. And we'll do that in a moment when we come to this table. But I also want to, to remind us that it is always right and good to look to Jesus. Robert Murray McShane, he was a pastor in the 1800s. He was only 30 years old when he died, but he made a tremendous impact as a pastor for eight years. He has this great quote. It says, for every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. So before you come to this table this morning, take one look at yourself and then take 10 looks at Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word for us this morning. Lord, it's a hard word. But your hard words create soft hearts. And so I pray that you'd soften our hearts to see our shame, that you'd shut our mouths before the truth of your law, and that we would only cry out to you. Lord, your gospel tells us all we need is need. And so, Lord, I pray that the truth of our need would be evident in each one of our hearts this morning, and that we would come to you by grace through faith, trusting and believing you. In Jesus' name, amen.